Good evening and welcome back to the Wednesday Night Bible Study. I'm Pastor Devin and we're going to be continuing our series tonight. But before we do, I just wanted to give a couple quick announcements. Everybody joining us on Facebook, thank you so much. We're glad to have everyone here in person as well. Uh, we have a couple things coming up. We have the men's conference, which will be actually this weekend. I believe there's still room to sign up. So if you have any questions, there's some information at the Hub, some sign-ups out there. Uh, we also have our women's self-defense seminar. That thing is filling up very quickly. So if you are interested in that, all women are welcome of all ages. Uh, that will also be this Saturday, the 17th. There's a sign-up sheet out there. Uh, get your name on there. I think they'll be reaching out to you this week uh, with a liability waiver, things like that. And then lastly is going to be our seniors' lunch on September 22nd, which is coming up just around the corner. So I know they have a lot of fun back there. I uh, try to pop in there as I can. So if you would like to join them, I believe you guys start at 11 o'clock. Is that right? 11 o'clock in the gym. And uh, this time they're actually going to have special guest speaker Malachi Hall, which is one of our youth that went to fine arts with us. And he did a phenomenal job, excited that he's getting an opportunity to speak. But before we do that, I just want to uh, open up for a, a time of prayer. Does anybody have anything going on? We're not going to go through specifics, but just to raise, raise your hand. Anybody have anything going on? You know, today's just been a day for me. Anybody else? It's just been a day. Nothing specific necessarily, but just one of those days. So I just want to open up in prayer and uh, invite the Holy Spirit into this room tonight as we dig into the Word. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come and read your Word together, to learn from your Spirit together as we uh, open up our hearts and say, God, what do you want to teach us tonight? What is it that you're trying to show us through your Word and through the community that we have in this room? I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all again for joining us. If you've joined me for the last uh, couple weeks, we have been in a series called Arguing Semantics, Words Matter. Words Matter. And we've been kind of doing some word studies uh, on some things that we maybe have misused words or not fully understood them. The first week we talked about justice, how justice is the consequence of living outside of God's goodness. Last week we talked about grace and mercy. Mercy being uh, us not receiving what we deserve and grace being us receiving what we don't deserve. So grace brings us in to the Father's household, but or mercy brings us into the Father's household, but grace gives us the uh, position of sonship and we get to enjoy all that the Father has to give. And, and really, I didn't intend to do this. I really intended just to kind of take some words, but there has been a thread through each of these that I've been following and it's pretty cool how it's all come together as I've been brainstorming my conclusion for next week. I think it's really going to be a cool way to wrap it all up. So today, we are going to be talking about judgment versus conviction. And if you remember last week, I opened up by saying I did not want to draw a line between the words mercy and grace. I wanted to be very careful to show that they were two sides of the same coin, right? Today, I'm going a different direction, and we are going to draw a very stark difference between the word judgment and the word conviction. And as we break these down, I hope that you can see the difference in Scripture and as they are applied to our lives. And we're going to be jumping in uh, starting in uh, Romans chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. I think up there it actually says 16. Uh, but I wanted to say there were some technical difficulties today. And by that, I mean technically the difficulty was me. I made the PowerPoint. It did not go so well. So I will tell you in advance that these are going to be very small. I apologize. The good thing is, as small as they are, now you won't see all the typos that I have in there. So it's okay. 
It, we covered all the bases. So we are actually going to be in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. This is the parable, often called the parable of the ungrateful servant. We're going to jump right here in verse 21. If you can't read the screen, it's okay. I'm going to be reading it, and we'll stop and talk about it a little bit on the way. So starting in verse 21. Now, to paint a picture, Jesus is teaching his disciples like he normally did. And one of his disciples, Peter, here in verse 21, he asks, How many times shall I forgive my brother who's ever been there? Now, you're not talking specifically about family, but we probably can relate. Who's been there where you're like, how many times do I have to forgive the same person for the same thing over and over and over? This is what Peter is asking. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, I don't say to you up to seven times, but 77 times. Now, he answers with that number. I don't really know the significance of the number. It's always, there's a lot of different theories on it. But then he goes into a parable. And this parable really, really digs deep. So hold on tight because it might be life-altering. It was for me as I read what this is actually saying. Starting in verse 23, Jesus says, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. Verse 24, and when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So this king has lended out money. He has debts all around the kingdom, and he's decided that he wants to settle up on these debts. So the idea is that up to this point, the slaves in the kingdom had the opportunity to enjoy the riches of the king. They could do whatever they want, and really were no consequences But the king suddenly decided that he wanted to call in his debt. This is not abnormal. In fact, this even happens today. If you've ever read anything by Dave Ramsey, this is actually how he got into debt in the first place that led him into uh, creating Financial Peace University. He was a young person, and he had purchased uh, on loan, I think it was like 15 different homes, and he was renting those out, just enjoying the money coming in until one day the bank decided they wanted to call their note on every single house he owned, and he went bankrupt overnight. So what he did is he began to search scripture and figure out how to get out of this. So little side note, but this is something that happens. Loans are called on even whenever they're not within their term. And this is what's happening. The king has called in his debt. One slave in particular comes in and he owes 10,000 talents. Now, if you're like me, I read that and I said, I have no idea what that means at all. I don't know what a talent is. I guess it's a lot. But I began to do a little bit of research, and as I researched some conversions, now obviously we're talking about thousands of years ago, it's hard to know exactly the amount, but they've deduced that it was probably somewhere in the ballpark of $3.48 billion that he owed. $3.48 billion. That is a lot of money. Anybody in the room have this? I don't. I don't. $3.8 billion. So we can kind of get in our minds a little bit more of a clear picture of how much he actually owed. Now, let's put it into further perspective. If you took the average wage of the average worker in those days, the daily wage, this would have taken him 60 million working days to pay this off. Now, maybe you're not sure exactly how that adds up, so I'll break it down like this. 200,000 years is how long it would have taken him to pay off $3.48 billion. That is an astronomical debt. Let's go even further. If he were to pass that debt onto his children, it would take 6,000 generations for this debt to be paid off. 6,000. 
2,000 generations. That means he would never be debt-free, and that king would never see his money back in his lifetime. That's a lot of money. But up to this point, he had enjoyed being debt-free. It hadn't been called in yet, but all of a sudden, the king has called him on the carpet, and he has said, I want my money back. Obviously, he was not able to repay that debt. He was not able to do it, and his master commanded him, commanded that he be sold along with his wife and his children and all that they had so that payment could be made. Now, it was not uncommon in those days as somebody was sold into slavery that families would be ripped apart, that they would be uh, sold to different places. Now, we can kind of understand that Jesus isn't talking about money. Obviously, we don't owe money to God, but we do owe a debt of sin. That's what we've been talking about, that we owed uh, such an astronomical debt as though it was $3.48 billion. That's how much we owed. Could have never paid it off. Our generation after generation could have never paid it off. But a whole sermon could be preached on how our debt breaks up our family. We could talk about that. I think that's a sermon for another time. But just think about putting that number into the perspective of sin, how much of an impact this made on this individual and his family. Now, he, the, the king orders that his family be sold into slavery. Now, if I were him, I would want to plead for mercy, right? Because I wouldn't want that to happen. I know that I can't pay it off. I would do whatever I could. So he, it says he fell on the ground and prostrated himself before the king. And he said, have patience with me and I will repay everything. Now, like we've said before, remember last week we talked about that when Adam and Eve uh, realized their nakedness, what did they do? They began to cover themselves. What did the son do whenever he realized that he was in over his head? He tried to work himself out of his problem. Now, this servant says, give me time, I will repay, which is exactly what you and I do whenever we feel like we owe a debt. We want to work it out, but he couldn't. There's no way he could. We've already broken that down. And the master of the servant felt compassion and he released him and forgave him of the debt. Now remember last week we talked about the compassion is another way of saying mercy. This is a parallel with God in the garden and the father of the prodigal son. Compassion led to mercy. The debt had been forgiven. But immediately after that, well let's step back for a second. Let's think about this. You were just forgiven $3.48 billion. How relieved. I don't even know if that's the right word <laughs> for it. If, uh, just imagine any debt that you do have. If somebody came along and they paid that off, you would be relieved. You would be absolutely uh, ecstatic. But the first thing this slave does is he goes out and he finds an individual who owes him 100 denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. He was just forgiven a debt. He goes out and he finds somebody who owes him money, and he says, pay me back now. Now, let's look at this, 100 denarii. What is that in our currency? Now, there's a lot of scholars disagree on this. There's a lot of different numbers that get thrown around. It's really hard to determine, but I came across one number, whether it's completely accurate or not, I think it really fits well into into the point that Jesus was trying to make. One theory is that 100 denarii equaled $1.62. One dollar and 62 cents. The debt of the slave was $3.48 billion and he is going to find a servant who owes him $1.62. 
Now the servant immediately says, have patience, let me go. And, And I don't know for sure, but I'm thinking, he's saying, let me go home. I don't have cash on me. That's possibly what he's saying. I don't have it on me. I can go and get it, but I don't have it with me. But what does he do? He, the, the, the slave says, went out, he found his fellow slaves that owed him the money. He began to choke him. He said, give me, pay, or be patient with me. But he was not willing. And he threw him in prison until he could pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. So now everybody else is seeing, they, they knew, obviously, somebody was uh, forgiven this huge debt. They probably knew about it. It was probably going around the kingdom. What a merciful king we have. What a great king we have. And they see the person who had just been forgiven now finding someone else demanding money. You can imagine that the community was not happy because this person was not reflecting uh, what a subject in this kingdom should look like. So they go. They report him to the master. In verse 32, Then summoning him, his master said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you also not have mercy on your fellow slave? In the same way that I had mercy on you, and his master moved with anger, he was moved with compassion, now he's moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he could repay all that was owed to him. So, the master has retracted his mercy and turned him over to the torturers, which was actually a worse punishment than what he would have faced if he just couldn't repay the debt. Now Jesus says in verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, what is Jesus saying? I think I know what he's saying. But I'm not sure that I'm ready to hear what Jesus is saying. So let's move on. Maybe we can find something that sounds a little bit better. So let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Nothing wrong with the Lord's Prayer, right? It's a nice uh, passage. Uh, Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Well, that sounds similar to what we just read. Um, The level of God's forgiveness is contingent upon ours. Well, that can't be right. Surely we're misreading the text, right? Well, here's one that might be a little bit more clear. Matthew 6, verses 14 through 15. For if you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. Well, there's no way around it. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. We've been forgiven a huge debt, but it's contingent on how we treat other people. It's contingent on how we forgive other people. Forgiveness is contingent upon us forgiving others. But why? Why would it be that way? It's our debt. Somebody else has offended us, right? So we deserve something from them. We have a right to be upset with them, to hold a grudge, wouldn't we? If somebody had done something to me, wouldn't I have a right for that? Well, let's go into Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Maybe we can get some clarity. It says, why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, whenever I first read that passage, whenever I was younger, as I grew up, I thought it was saying this. If I can come in with a morally upright position and there's nothing blame, I'm blameless, there's nothing in me, I haven't done anything wrong, then I have the right to come and tell other people their faults. 
That's kind of how I understood it. Am I, am I alone? Does anybody else read it that way? That if I get all of my stuff figured out, then I can help you with your stuff. I can point out your flaws. I remember uh, whenever I first got married, kind of my perspective of any argument, we don't have many arguments, but if we ever did, my perspective was, as long as I'm in the clear, I can point out what she did wrong. But I'd have to think about it for a second and think, okay, well, did I do the dishes? No, I didn't. Okay, I'm not going to bring that up. That was kind of my perspective at first, and it was faulty. Don't follow my, my uh, thoughts there. But that's kind of how we review this, is that we, there's a, a provision here that if we are morally upright enough, then we have the right to call out what other people have done wrong. But there's only one who is morally upright enough to remove with precision, and it's not us. It's not me and you. The idea here is that the speck in some way offends us. Think about that for a moment. If we feel the need to call something out in somebody else, it's probably because they've done something that offends us. Maybe they, uh, they speak to us in a bad way and we want to say, hey, that's not right. You shouldn't speak to me that way. Or maybe they practice something that we don't think is right. We've chosen not to practice it, and it offends us that they don't have the same moral uh, conviction that we do. So we feel the need to say, hey, I don't know if you know this or not, but you shouldn't do that. We feel the right to call other people out. But it's kind of like they owe a dollar sixty-two, and we forget that we've been forgiven of $3.48 billion dollars. Now let's think about it practically. If you owed someone three billion dollars and someone owed you money like a dollar sixty-two, it would be right in saying that the money collected from the person who owes you so little actually belongs to the person who you owe three million dollars to. Because until you've paid them off, anything that comes into you really should probably go to them to try to pay off that debt. What am I saying? I'm saying that the debt owed to the slave was actually owed to the king. The debt that was owed to the slave was actually owed to the king because the slave was so bankrupt that anything that came to him really should have gone there. We are so morally bankrupt, what we owe to our master, to our God, is so astronomical that we really don't have the right to collect a debt on others. Now let's look at scripture and see if this can be validated. Let's look at Psalm 51.4. This is the lament that David is giving whenever he has sinned greatly. Now let's paint a picture here. David, King David, is the chosen king of Israel. He is a man that God has said is a man after my own heart. He's supposed to be the shining example. We read into scripture and see that he is a symbol of Christ to come. He is supposed to be the moral example to Israel. Now, the first thing he does wrong, we won't go into the whole story. I'll just kind of paraphrase it. The first thing he does wrong is it says that when kings go to battle, David's at home. That was always interesting to me. Why wasn't he at battle? He wasn't where he was supposed to be in the first place. Supposed to be a mighty warrior, but he wasn't at war. He's on his rooftop. He's looking out and he sees a woman bathing. Second mistake he made. He sees her. He likes her. He asks her to come over. And then, to make matters worse, he decides he wants this woman for herself, but there's a problem. She has a husband. 
He takes care of that problem. This man, her husband, is a general in his army. He says, well, it's not really a problem because I can send him to the front lines where he'll be massacred, and now he's out of the question. So he wasn't where he was supposed to be. He's now an adulterer, and he's also a murderer. This man who was supposed to be the morally upright example for Israel. But here as he's repenting for what he's done, Psalm 51.4, it says, he's speaking to God, against you and you alone I have sinned. Another translation says, against you and you only. The idea is that he is saying, my sin is to you alone. Now that can't be right. Because here, he has ruined a woman's life by taking her husband away from her. Scripture doesn't necessarily indicate that she even consented to his advances. So who knows if that was even something she wanted. Now her entire life is flipped upside down. Her husband's murdered. A man who was faithful to David has been murdered. In Israel, surely people knew what had happened. This person who was supposed to be the moral example has now failed an entire nation of people. I would say that there were a lot of people who could have felt that they had been sinned against. But here David is saying, against you and you alone have I sinned. We are so indebted to our master that we don't have the right to collect a debt on others. I think David, even if he didn't understand what he was writing when he wrote it, I think he was writing a a spiritual truth here. He was writing that our sin is between us and, and God. That if somebody does something against us, we really don't even have the right to expect them to come come clean to us about it because we are so morally bankrupt before God. Now this leads us back to our original discussion on justice. When we reject the standard, and in this case we're ignoring the debt we owe, then we position ourselves as judge. Now, originally, whenever we talked about positioning ourselves as judge, we, we were talking about how we put God on trial and begin to say, God, you haven't given me enough. You haven't given me the life that I think I deserve. We become entitled and we put God on trial because he didn't do what we think he should. But now we're doing the same thing with each other. When we judge, we're assuming a moral high ground. We are saying, I am in a position higher than you. And because of that, I can call you out because I have nothing to repent for or at least nothing that I want you to know about. Nothing that I need to repent for or at least nothing that I want you to know about. And if I am loud enough and if I point at you long enough, then maybe, just maybe, nobody will see the brokenness in me. Nobody will see what I'm really trying to hide. Judgment is a deflection away from our own brokenness. Remember in our original text, Genesis 3, Genesis 3, verses 11 through 13, it says, And he said to them, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent has deceived me. And I ate. What did they do? They immediately pointed to someone else. God asked a very specific question. What did you do? What is this that you did? And rather than saying, I messed up, they said, well, it wasn't actually me. It was was them. They did it. 
Basic human nature says, when I get caught, I'll hide. What's the first thing they did? They hid. What's the second thing they said? If I can't hide, then I'll deflect. But how is it that we know that we have something to hide? Something in us is telling us that. Now, in in today's society specifically, it's very common for us to blame somebody else for what we did wrong. Well, I didn't get fired. My boss just didn't understand me, right? My boss didn't understand that I need to sleep in a little bit later. He just didn't understand that. Or uh, my parents didn't raise me right. It's their fault. It's my parents, they, they, they yelled at me a little bit too much, they didn't take the, they spanked me, so that's why I am the way that I am. We constantly deflect. Some people, they blame the, the, the zodiac signs. Well, I'm a Scorpio, so that's why I talk to you. I don't know if you're a Scorpio, but you're a Cancer. Uh, or there's the, uh, you know, all those personality tests, the, uh, the Myers-Briggs. They might say, well, I, I just, people don't understand me because I'm an INTJ. Well, I don't know about that, but sometimes you are a J-E-R-K. So, you know, I, I don't know, but we, we blame everybody else for our own shortcomings. It's basic human nature. Now, why is it that we know when we've messed up? Something in us tells us that we did wrong. Now, we know at the beginning, when our first parents ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes were opened. They knew the difference between good and evil. They also knew where they ranked in that, and they were not on the good side because they no longer reflected the goodness of God. But over the centuries, generation upon generation, mankind has fell into pagan practices, vile activities, and have lived with a distorted view of reality. But something inside of each of us continues to point back to what is right and pleasing to God. Even those who are farthest away from God. Even if we went to a country who had never heard the name of Jesus, there would still be a moral code that they would follow to some extent. They would still have certain lines that they would not cross. They might look somewhat different than ours. Uh, One way I've heard it put is that nations differ over when we can kill someone, but they've never differed over that we can just kill somebody whenever we want, right? Uh, They might say some nations might have a view of uh, that you can have multiple wives, maybe other countries, but they've never said you can have whichever wife you want, right? You can't steal somebody else's. So there's always some kind of a moral code within it. C.S. Lewis, again, he talked about that some people call it a conscience, He called it natural law, that there's something built in each one of us that points us back to the goodness of God, even if we don't attribute it to God. Now, for Christians, we have a heightened sense of this, and we call it conviction. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, why does the Holy Spirit do this? Does he do it so that we're nice people? Does he do it so that we don't cut people off in traffic? Does he do it so that we let people cut in front of us at the grocery store? Or does he do it for something else? We can kind of get a better picture by looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Starting in verse 12. So then, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for good pleasure. So God is at work in us. Last week we talked about that grace is an undeserved gift that empowers us to live 
to, to live into the life that Christ died for us to have. Here, we see that the gift is God himself working in us both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. In our first week, we talked about that good is defined as what reflects God's character. So here it's saying that grace is a free gift given to us that works within us. It's God himself working in us to build the desire and to work toward looking like the character of God. Now that word work sometimes throws us off. Remember last week we talked about that a servant works to earn something. A son works because they already have something. We work to embody the character of God because we have been called his sons because of the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. So that free gift is God working inside of us, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Now, let's look a little bit further in Romans 8, verses 9 through 13. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So now we see a little bit more of the picture. That undeserved gift of God, that undeserved gift of grace is God himself through his Spirit working in us to put a desire into work toward embodying the character of God himself. Moving forward into verses uh, 28 through 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of the Son. Now, whether God chose or simply knew who would come to him, He has orchestrated the events of life for one purpose, for our good. Now, sometimes we read that and we think that means that we're going to have a great life ahead of us, that everything's going to be great, that everything's going to be perfect. But what did we identify the word good to mean? It reflects God. God works things for our good, which in verse 29, that good is being conformed to the image of Christ again Grace is the free gift of God himself working through his spirit to put a desire in us working toward embodying the character of Christ which we know is being conformed to the image of the Son. But we have to stop and we have to ask this question, who is the Holy Spirit? We've heard this term before. We we know that there is a Holy Spirit, hopefully. We hear it in the prayers, but who is this person of the Holy Spirit? This person is the third person of the Trinity. He was introduced, really, for us to understand who he was in the book of Acts. Whenever Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, My Father will send a helper, one like me, who will come and he will... It'll be better that he's here rather than me because he will embody you. He will live inside of you. But who is this Holy Spirit? Um... 
looking at uh, John 14, 17, the helper, or the, the spirit, is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he remains in you and you uh, will be and will be in you. So he's the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth. We also see that in John 16, 13. <clears throat> but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. So he is the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We also see in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not know God, <clears throat> sorry, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In Galatians 5, 23 through 23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So he is also the spirit of love. Then we see in Ephesians 3.16 that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner self. So he is the spirit of life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of love. He's the spirit of life. Now the spirit is multifaceted but throughout church history different groups have emphasized various parts of him rather than embodying who he is completely. So there might be groups that emphasize love. We've probably seen some churches where love and community is the emphasis they place. Emphasis is placed on making people feel comfortable. The larger the community, the more effective the church. So it really doesn't matter how we get them in here as long as we have a lot of people because then we show love and love is what the Spirit is all about. This pursuit emphasizes the love of God and his acceptance of all people as they are, which we believe. We believe that anyone is welcome through those doors, no matter what they're bringing into here. But it doesn't, it can't continue from that point. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Then there are some that emphasize life. Emphasis placed on a conversion experience, renewal, and personal conviction. Discipleship involves uh, that. Discipleship involves experiences that transform us. Worship services and spiritual practices. So churches where the idea is to create an experience, an encounter, so that you will come face to face with the person of God and that will change you. Again, nothing wrong with that, but we can't overly emphasize any part of who he is. And then there's truth. Where emphasis is placed on living out godly life as scripture has instructed. Groups with this emphasis typically hold others to a standard of their own interpretation. Sometimes they tend to be labeled Bible thumpers. Have you ever been labeled a Bible thumper? Someone who, here's what the book says, here's what you need to do. It could be an overemphasis on truth. Now, when we emphasize one facet of his personality, we tend to idolize that quality and forget about the others. But in the same way that in my marriage, I can't just accept one side of my wife. I have to accept who she is as a person. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. He's not something that we can pick and choose the qualities that we like. He presents himself for who he is. He's presented himself as the spirit of truth, the spirit of love, the spirit of life. So that is how we have to embrace him. So if we focus too much on truth, it can easily become head knowledge that lacks true renewal and alienates others who may view things differently. 
Maybe we put a focus on life, which can become overly personal and may use scripture to validate experiences rather than to safeguard from false teachings. And it can also lim- uh, <clears throat> limit openness to rebuke and correction because may, have you ever known someone or may, maybe it's been your own personal story where your conversion was so radical that it changed the person you are. You, you did a complete turnaround, but it was all about going from experience to experience to experience. And if somebody tried to say, hey, uh, maybe the way that you're approaching that isn't necessarily in line with scripture, uh, it didn't go over so well because it becomes a limit uh, to rebuke and correction. Or maybe the focus is so much on love that we tend to embrace all as they are and are reluctant to, for anyone to hold anyone accountable to Scripture. Judgment is often placed on those who establish perimeters on godly living. So each of these components over the course of church history has been an overemphasis, an overemphasis on truth where we're so focused on people knowing what Scripture says, so focused on this is what I understand it to say and this is how you need to live because this is how I'm trying to live, or an overemphasis on the love component of, you know what, let's just have everybody come in. It doesn't really matter how you live your life. God accepts everyone. I heard a worship song the other day where it talked about that there's nothing in the heart of God but love. Well, that's not a bad statement, but there is more to God than love. That's a component of who he is. But he's also true. He's also a, a just judge who has a standard. We've talked about that. There has to be more than just one component. Or maybe we just care so much about the life portion that we forget that there is a standard we have to, we have to stand up to. And we forget that we have to have truth in our life. But if each of these are characteristics of, characteristics of the Spirit, then there must be a balanced approach. So let's look at truth first. Scripture provides a standard that we can set a foundation on for godly living. That's where we should start. That is, that is the, the, the message from God himself telling us how to live our lives. It, people always say life doesn't come with a rule book or doesn't come with a, an instruction manual. Well, it does. You don't get it at birth, but it's there. God's told us how it's supposed to be. It's a great place to start. But if I study scripture and I know where every book of the Bible is and I know how to chart the maps in the back and I know exactly where I can thumb through and find the passage that I want without even looking and I know all the Greek and the Hebrew and everything like that, but that has never taken root in my heart, then there's no life to be produced. And if whenever I go and I want to tell you that something you're doing doesn't line up with this book and I actually push you further away than I was intending to, then I'm not producing love, which also doesn't produce life. Or maybe I go and I say, you know what, I, all I care about is that you feel love. That's all that matters. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to be any different. And I'm never going to hold you accountable to scripture. That doesn't produce life either. Or if I'm going from one experience to the next and after that and after another and it almost becomes a drug looking for the next spiritual high and I'm not allowing scripture to hold me accountable in my experiences then that will not produce life. And we are, we are focusing on one part of the Holy Spirit and not the other. We should always start with scripture. The spirit illuminates the text so that we can understand it. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 16. It's a long passage, but I'll read it here real quick. It's really important. For, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. 
For who among people knows the thoughts of a person except the spirit of the person that is in him? So also the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. But the one who, is spirit, who spiritually discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct, but we have the mind of Christ. So, Scripture's illuminated to us as we read, and the Holy Spirit allows those truths to come into our heart. He convicts us as we read these passages of Scripture, and we read these things. If we were just reading it like words on a page, it wouldn't convict our our heart, but the Holy Spirit actually pulls those words off of the page and puts it on our heart to make us convicted by what we read. Or maybe it's not us reading it, but maybe it's us sitting in in a seat of someone speaking, and what we're saying is convicting to them. That's the Holy Spirit working through the text into the heart of the believer. This passage also indicates that the Spirit will search our hearts and convict us like a, like a conscience on steroids. It's not just pointing us to Christ, it's actually revealing Christ. As we pray and worship, we become more and more sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's a relationship. It's not just something that we, uh, we practice. It's someone who we get to know. And the best way that you can ever enhance any relationship is to spend quality time. We do that through prayer and worship. And as we start in Scripture and the Holy Spirit illuminates these things, it gives us a hunger. Remember, the Spirit is working in us to give us a desire to go after God. We have a desire to pray and to worship. In those moments, the Holy Spirit begins to convict us. Why does He convict us? Because He's conforming us to the image of the Son. That's His job in all of this. But, and this is where we go full circle, the Spirit also convicts us through community. This is why we need all three components. Because truth is important. Life is important. But so is love. So is community. But what does community provide? Community provides accountability, is the first thing. In the Old Testament, God moved upon prophets to speak to Israel. One example of this was Nathan, the prophet, who rebuked David concerning Bathsheba, what we spoke about earlier. When David had sinned, either he chose not to see the faults. I I tend to think he knew what he did wrong because he tried to cover it up. But he wasn't willing to admit it. And so he he, he didn't admit it. What we saw in Psalm 51 was a repentance because the prophet Nathan came and said, Hey, this happened and you're the one that did it. You need to repent. It took another person for David to see that. We also see that in the New Testament. We see examples of Paul rebuking Peter when he was acting one way with the Jews and another with the Gentiles. We also see Peter rebuke Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about how much they were giving. We actually even saw this in our story. Because if you remember, after the the, the ungrateful servant went and he... His debt had been forgiven, and he went to collect the debt of $1.62, and he took him to the ground, and he began to choke him. The fellow servants were the ones that went to the king and said, he is not representing your goodness. They were keeping him accountable. 
The second thing that community provides is structure. Now that we all have the spirit that abides in us, we have to discern when he's speaking to us. One way that we do that is by coming under accountability. Now, I can't come up here and preach whatever I want. I can preach what I feel that the Spirit is leading me to say, but I also know that Pastor Mike is watching me. And if I preach something that is out of line with Scripture, you better believe that I'll be in his office and he's going to be showing me where I went wrong, which I would gladly accept because I want to learn. That's coming under accountability. Even beyond that, our pastor's under accountability. We have a board of elders who would do the same for him. And as an Assemblies of God church, we have a larger denomination that has a hundred, hundred plus year heritage of, uh, of accountability and a certain doctrinal statement that we abide by. And if we go outside of those bounds, we would be called into that. You couldn't have that outside of community. Another thing that it provides is fellowship. By us just rubbing shoulders with each other, we become more like Christ as, we, uh, as we're challenged by each other. As we watch the personal testimonies of other people, we also have role models. People who have been at this for a lot longer than we have. One thing I love about our church is that we have people in this church who were here when this church was incepted, when this church began. And I, I love the fact that my son, who's 17 months old, will grow up seeing people like the Thackers who are going to leave an example for him, who are going to show him what it looks like to live a godly life. Even at such a young age, he can look and he can see what it looks like to live out a godly life. You couldn't have that outside of community. But we said at the beginning, we want to draw a line between the word judgment and conviction. And if you're not careful, when you start getting into a community, what's something that tends to happen in churches, especially churches where everybody knows each other, we tend to judge, right? We might do it in the form of gossip. We might do it in the form of prayer requests, right? Uh, we really need to be pray for, praying for sister so-and-so. Did you hear about everything that's going on in her life? I, I'm just letting you know so that we can pray for her. She's got a lot of things that we need to pray for. So where's the line? We know that judgment is us deflecting away from our own brokenness, but we also know that conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit and that he sometimes uses community to do that. One way that he does that, I forgot to mention this, it's important. Think about in the garden, Adam and Eve, I'm going to keep going back to that because that's kind of where it all started. Think about there was something missing in their life that you and I enjoy, and that was reflection. Have you ever noticed, thought about the fact that Adam and Eve didn't know what they looked like? They had no clue. Maybe they saw their, uh, their, their reflection in the water, but even that would be distorted. All they had was each other and God. All they had, if there was something, a hair was misplaced, Adam had to trust Eve to tell him. That's how it started with community, with one person telling the other person, hey, this is something that I noticed about you. Because the individual would have been unable to see that in themselves. Community is important. So how do we divide judgment and conviction? How do we bring correction in a godly way? Well, beginning, let's start with love. Do you really care about the person that you're calling out? Do you really care about the person who you're pointing out what they're doing wrong? And if you do, you're probably going to do it privately. You're not going to do it in a way that's embarrassing. You're probably going to do it in a way that continues the relationship that you have. You probably have a relationship with this person. 
You're going to do it with compassion. Do you really want to see them change? Do you really want to see what they're doing to move? Let's make sure that it's rooted in truth. I mentioned before, maybe it's a personal conviction for you. We, we all have these things. Without going into a long, uh, detailed description of it, the Jewish people did this. Whenever they saw that the Ten Commandments were being broken, generation upon, upon generation, they would build fences around. They called them fences. They were rules before you got to the rules. They were things that were not actually asked of them by God, but they didn't want to break that rule because it would keep them from breaking the main rules. Let's make sure that the things that we are actually uh, calling people out on are rooted in truth and not just something personal. Most importantly, let's make sure that it's not just a way of deflecting or hiding our struggles. That's what we mentioned before. When we get caught, we tend to point other people out. Let's also make sure that it's from a personal testimony. It's one of the best ways to share this. If you sit down with someone and you say, hey, I see where you're headed. I was headed the same direction. This is where it got me, and this is how God rescued me from it. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak through you that way. So that's kind of the dividing between the two. But as we all know, those of us who have grown up in church, or maybe you're new to this, and maybe you've already experienced, I hate to say it, there will be people who come up and they try, they might be well-intentioned. Maybe they aren't. But they end up judging us for the way that we are. Maybe something that we did before uh, we were a believer, but it's still a part of our life now. And often that pushes people away. Maybe we've all, I'm I'm sure all of us have experienced this at times. Somebody who may be well-intentioned called us out on something and didn't do it in the right way. But we should still receive correction, even if it isn't brought about properly. Let's jump back to Romans 8, 28 through 29. What does it say? It says that God works for the good of all who love him, that good being conformity to the image of the Son. That does not mean that God's only going to use the good stuff. It probably means he's mostly going to use the bad stuff because the bad stuff is what tests us. It's what challenges us. And sometimes the bad stuff is somebody who comes and says something to you that offends you, that bothers you, that makes you say, whose business is... is of yours to call me out on that you don't know my story but is it possible that it was all it was it could be used as an opportunity to make you grow is it possible that you're carrying an offense today because of the way that somebody handled something when in reality God's saying I I, I'm sorry that it happened that way but it's still truth it's still something that you need to change it's still something that I am calling you to walk out of Now, my takeaways today are this. Judgment is detrimental to spiritual growth. But conviction flows from a spirit of love, of truth, and of life. Conviction, if we accept it, if we allow it into our life, if we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, even if it's through a broken vessel, it'll produce life. Now, as I was writing this today, I really felt the need to focus in on that portion of the offenses that we take. Because I know how easy it is within the body of Christ, within our community of believers, to hold on to things that somebody said to us. And I think tonight, the opportunity, the invitation that I feel the Spirit leading me to give is this, that it's time to let it go. It's time to look past the words that were spoken It's time to look past 
even if somebody meant to hurt you, it's time to allow that experience to become something more than what the enemy meant for it to be. It's time to allow even that experience to be something that God uses for our good. Let's change the way that we approach each other. Let's walk away from the judgment. Let's lean into conviction in love, producing life rooted in truth. Let's divide the two and let's grow together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's challenging. I thank you that it tests us because we can't grow without it. I pray tonight that these words would drive deep into the hearts of every person who hears it, that it would be convicted, that it would come across from love. It would be life-producing, that it would be rooted in truth, and that we would see that maybe we've been holding on to something for far too long. Looking back at your parable of the ungrateful servant, I pray that you would search our hearts even now and help us to see where we have been unforgiving and how that may have bearing on our own forgiveness. I pray today that you would convict our heart and lead us to forgive those. Because it's really not our debt anyway. It all belongs to you. And it was all paid for when you paid for ours. I thank you that you grow us thank you that it's not always easy because nothing in life that's worth having ever comes easy and what you provide is so worth it I pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus Amen well next week we're going to wrap up this series and uh, I'm actually really excited about this we will be focusing on the word brokenness which is really where it all ties back in because that's where we started that we are a broken people and how we can minister with an outflow from that brokenness. I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you all so much.